Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Parenting Aces Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio's UR Tennis Network. I am coming at you live from the BB&T Atlanta Open, sitting in the lobby of the 12 Hotel, which is the player hotel and kind of the command center for most of the tournament and where I've been spending a lot of time so far this week. And I'm really excited because I've got sitting next to me Andrew Carter, who is a young up-and-coming pro player. He played in the qualifying here. Unfortunately, didn't make it out of the qualifying draw, but I'm going to let him talk about his experience and what's on tap for him. He grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, was a top player in North Carolina, top player in the South, top player in the country, went on to play at Louisville for four years and earned a political science degree there, which that's my degree too, so kind of cool, and has been plugging away at his professional tennis career and has just recently launched a new website on top of everything else. So I'm really excited to have you with us, Andrew. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's very exciting to be here with you and to be on the Fernie Aces uh, live radio show. Thank you so much for having me. So this is so cool for you this week. You have spent a lot of time in Atlanta. You told me yesterday that you grew up playing a lot of tennis here, training here. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like, moving away from your parents for a bit and coming to Atlanta to train as as a kid? Yeah, so, well, actually, um, I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, which um, is kind of a little hotbed in the south for tennis. We had, you know, Isner. We had a lot of... Um, Southern champions and players from the South that uh, played at a high level in Greensboro. So I actually, I actually did live in Greensboro, um, and I was in public school there. But I would, um, you know, leave on the weekends to go play tournaments and you know train, um, train with some different coaches and things like that. But um, it was, it was, you know, it's very challenging for any I think teenager who's playing tennis uh, very seriously and competitively. Um, especially as a guy I did in public school because, you know, you have, obviously you have your teenage, you know, uh, crisis, you know, of developing, <laughs> becoming yourself as a teenager and going through things through high school. And then also you have what I like to tell people is the junior tennis world community because, you know, growing up in this junior tennis world, you have kind of your own separate uh, group of friends that you see at the tennis tournament. And back in my day, we didn't really have cell phones, so we used to actually, you know, chat online uh, back on AOL and stuff, and we'd be really excited to see each other at the tennis tournament and on the weekend. And so you kind of had an actual separate tennis community within the tennis, uh, junior tennis world. So it was uh, it was very cool to have that experience as well as, you know, the normal uh, public school experience. Um, it taught me a lot of things, you know, about discipline and time management because, you know, as a high school kid, you have, you know, your academics, your grades. I did play high school tennis my freshman year, um, but the other years I was really focusing on my national ranking, my southern ranking, and my uh, North Carolina ranking. So I didn't have the chance to play high school tennis those last three years because um, I was trying to be uh, playing a lot of big tournaments then. But um, it taught me really how to be disciplined at a young age, you know, at 14, 15, 13 how to, you know, have your friends in school, how to do your homework every night, 
and then go and train, you know, four, three, four hours and um, wake up. I personally, I woke up in the morning before school and, you know, train, do some things with my dad and, you know, things to try and evil the playing field with some of the people who are doing homeschool. Um, and that really instilled in me a uh, passion for actually liking to work hard um, because I thought it made me stand out because, you know, everyone at school was like, oh, that's the guy who, you know, he plays tennis. You know, he's not going, you know, to a lot of, like, the movies and stuff on the weekends with all the other kids. And he's going to go travel to the tennis tournament, you know. So I kind of stood out that way, but it was really my passion. So um, the sacrifices, I think, for me personally, were worth it. You know, um, I always tell people that do I miss, you know, hanging out with other kids, you know, doing normal teenager stuff. But really, I don't think I missed out anything because the opportunities that I have now are really because of those sacrifices that I made then. So really, I think I, I've been rewarded a lot for those sacrifices that I took when I was 13, 14, 15, traveling with my mom. Because my, you know, my dad was always working, so traveling with my mom on the weekend, she took off from work to go, you know. So I know that experience. Your parent, you're traveling with your parents, yeah. you're in the hotel, and you're playing a bullfrog or a southern, you know, section tournament, and you have to miss school on that Monday, and I know all that, you know, all those experiences. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, can definitely relate with that kind of that kind of uh, lifestyle for sure. Was there ever a point where you felt burnout yeah. from tennis, and if how did you handle that? So um, I started tennis actually at age three. Um, my older brother is nine years older than me, so he actually was starting tennis at age 12, and he was my big brother, and I literally wanted to do anything that he wanted to do. You know, <laughs> he was playing tennis. I'm on the tennis court just kind of literally, like, hit, picking up the balls and tossing them to him. You know, that was, for me, in my mind, that was tennis, you know, just throw the balls in the net or something like that, and that got me on the tennis court at age three. So I was really pretty young. Um, when I first started tennis, um, and seeing my brother play, and I that that really gave me a passion for it. And then my my dad was very supportive of me. My mom was very supportive of me playing tennis. Um, so all through um, my early stages, I think I played my first tennis tournament. Actually, I know I when I played my first tournament, I was eight years old, and um, I'll never forget this. My cousin, who uh, it was a, uh, my cousin who actually passed away now, but she was uh, one of my really close friends. Yeah. And um, I was playing the Dark Branch Tennis Tournament in Bedford, North Carolina, which is a very, very small, like 10 and under tennis tournament, right? And um, I think I can't remember if I won it. I was in the finals of the tournament. I got a trophy. You know, okay. I don't really remember if I won or lost, but I got a trophy. You know, that's what little kids remember. You know? Of course. Um, I got a trophy, and I remember Misty, which was my cousin, um, at the same time Wimbledon was going on. And she was like, oh, Andrew, uh, look at that Wimbledon trophy. Trophy, Isn't it so pretty? You know, it look like that. And I was like, yeah, I really like that trophy. You know, and she's like, well, are you going to keep trying to play tennis until you can one day, you know, be in that tournament? And uh, I was like, you know what? I really want to. I want to, you know, try and play Wimbledon and try that tournament and US Open and all these kind of things. And that's when, uh, that's the first time I told anyone like that, you know, and uh, I was probably only 
eight, eight years old then. Wow. And uh, that's when that's when she told my parents and everyone was, you know, like, like, wow, that's awesome. You have a passion this young for it. So I really um, showed my passion, I guess, young. And that passion has stuck with me all the way through my career. Obviously, tennis is a very demanding sport. It's also it's demanding physically. It's also demanding mentally. Um, maybe more mentally than mm-hmm. physically, especially because um, with tennis, it's a sport where are developing skills at such a young age, um, like discipline, time management, focus, concentration. You're developing those skills, you know, as a five-year-old, as a six-year-old, as a ten-year-old. Right. You know, they're not actually teaching you, hey, this is how you do discipline. They're teaching you, hey, you need to show up to practice at 4.30. You know, you need to run these laps. I'm telling you, you need to do the footwork, you know, step with your left foot. And all those things, you know, I think are great ways to teach kids great life skills and uh, morals and all those kinds of things without, you know, while still having fun. So with that, um, that was also kind of helping me. That's why my tennis wasn't too much of a burden when I was younger. Um, it was really helping me grow more as a person. And then when I started playing, you know, junior tennis, um, 12 to 14 in the North Carolina region and the Southern region when I started traveling, um, I remember seeing lots of kids who were, you know, starting to go off to academies. And I remember playing the boys 12, uh, boys 12 Clayport Super National Championships, which at the time was hosted in Greensboro, North Carolina, which oh, was wow. the yeah. So I played that, and uh, that was pretty cool because, you know, you're one of the best, you know, whatever 12-year-olds in the nation. Or, you know, <laughs> I wish y'all could see his yeah. face right now. <laughs> yeah, because I just remember, I actually still have the hat in that tournament. I tell the tournament direct all the time. But, um, you know, I saw you have all these kids, and it's really fascinating. Um, if you look at the draw of that tournament, I think there was 196 players in that tournament, I think, the toughest draws. So it's very fascinating to see how many players of those players from 12, you know, continued to 14, 16, and 18, and then how many of those players from 12 played in Kalamazoo at 16 and 18, and then how many of those players, you know, made it all the way to college tennis and are just actually a good number of those players, you know, for the ATP rankings now. So it's, it's pretty cool to see that. Um, you came up in a pretty impressive group of players. Yeah. Name drop for us. Um, well, I was... Like, in North Carolina, we had um, some national champions. We had Kevin Galloway, who was a national champion in the southern region. We had, you know, Kenneth Engren. We had Ryan Williams. We had Jameer Jenkins, who were pretty top in the south. Uh, we had a guy named Ryan Noble, who was pretty top in the nation. Um, this guy, actually, was sitting behind me, Kevin King, was one, of the, was one of the top guys in the nation as well. He was also from the south. Um, he played it. At Georgia Tech, yeah, yep. he was a great player. You know, yep. been doing fantastic on the professional circuit. Um, we had, um, man, we have we've had we've had a lot of guys in the South that have turned into players with ATP rankings. Right. So it's actually pretty funny because you have these people who are saying, "Oh, you're only playing, you know, sectional or designated tournament. You need to go play out of ITS." But really, it's the competition level. You know, for us, we were, we were having great competition, and that, you know, helped all of us get better. You know, yes, some of us did go and play ITF, nationals, 
but our competition every weekend was so high that it really helped all of us get better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was it was pretty exciting at those times, and um, I think like going back to the burned out thing. Yeah. And in uh, juniors, I think maybe when I was starting the college process, recruiting process. Recruiting. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, your junior year. Yeah, my year? my junior year. Um, actually, when I started, I was you know very eager, very excited, um, but. The process is very long and good, especially for, you know, high school kids. Yeah. Because, you know, everyone's going to college and you're having good friends. And it's, a, it's a daunting task, really. It's a very, at the time, it's probably the most maybe important decision that you're really making on your own. Absolutely. You know, so it's very important. So I thought maybe during that middle time, I really started pressing in my tennis, in my academics at high school. Um, and I really started feeling pressure for the first time. You know, having to perform, having these expectations, trying to make a big decision. And um, I really, you know, praise my parents for being very supportive, not pushing me too hard, um, understanding what I was going through. And um, they actually let me take a little break from tournaments for maybe a month or two. And I really focused on my academics and just practicing then. And that, you know, helped me refocus on what my goals were, you know, helped me get a clean, uh, you know, my body was feeling more healthy, my mindset in a better place. So that's one time I, I did feel pressure and, you know, a little bit of that. Also, another time was in college. Um, we were, so I went to University of Louisville um, from 2008 to 2012. Um, we were the most, our teams were the most successful in program history, which was very exciting. Um, we got to the highest number 10 in the nation in NCAA Division One. Who were um, some of your teammates that So be? some of my teammates were Austin Childs. Um, he actually made the NCAA Finals. Um, he lost to Bradley Crawford in the Finals um, in Athens. So he was a top player. Simon Childs was another top player. Um, Victor Maximchuk was another top player. We had some American, Robert Hall, who was also from the South. He was uh, maybe number one in the South and a very top player. He was very uh, integral part of our team, winning our big, we won three biggest championships, which was very cool. Wow. Uh, and my, I want to say my junior year, about the middle of my junior year, um, so a little, so my sophomore year was our, we made it to top ten in the nation. We had only. Uh, sophomores and juniors playing. Wow. And we were, you know, we finished at 16, and it was a great accomplishment. We were very excited for our junior year. So our junior year, we had a lot of expectations, a lot of pressure, you know, a lot of people were looking at our team. Um, our team did very well. We made national indoors, made 16 um, for national indoors and things. But we weren't, we were staying around the 10 to 12 ranking, 20 to 15 ranking. So we weren't doing as well as we wanted to, mm-hmm. and for any team, you know, that takes a lot on you. Because you're in college, you're doing your, your schoolwork, you have all these uh, demands from your sport, you're looking at your future, you know, um, you're becoming an adult, right. so you're developing these, you know, actual adult skills. Um, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully, <laughs> after we just went out of life to college. Yeah. And, um, that time there was a period where I really was burnt out. You know, I was frustrated with my tennis. I was frustrated with my academics. Um, 
I really didn't have a direction of where I wanted to go. But my goals were a little bit blurry. And uh, Had you declared your major at that point? Um, I, I was. I was a political science major. I was actually on, uh, also on academic scholarship. And I was starting to take a lot of my core political science classes. Mm-hmm. And personally, um, University of Louisville was a great school. Um, I recommend it to everyone. Uh, but as a student athlete, it's very tough sometimes when you're traveling because we were missing a lot of class. Right. Um, we had a very tough schedule. And some of the political science professors made it a point to show no favoritism towards athletes. Mm. And sometimes I think they actually maybe wanted to make it harder for the athletes just to prove that there was no favoritism. Right. So, you know, I'm missing classes, I'm missing lectures, I'm reading all of these constitutional case studies and all this stuff in the vans, on the plane, and then I'm coming and playing a match, and then I'm coming and taking a final right. or an exam or writing all these papers on my laptop, and I'm dealing with all that. And then we weren't doing that. We were doing well, but we weren't making the breakthrough into the ranking. So I had a lot of, you know, stress from the um, tennis and academics. So for anyone, that's, that's a tough situation. So right. actually, I, I credit my coach, Rusty Karma. He was very understanding. I credit my parents for, you know, talking to me, and I credit my team for, you know, um, understanding some of the things that I was going through. Um, my coach actually let me take a little break during the season um, between two of our matches to just refresh my mind and because it, it, the sport of tennis is a demanding sport for anyone. Sure. Junior, professional, college, you know, all the levels. Right. Um, and um, after I took that break, I really, for me, I found the purpose of um, why I was doing this, why I was playing the sport, you know, who I was playing the sport for. And when I looked at all those things, my, my, I had the best rest of the season um, I think anyone on the team had. Really? Yes. That's and, awesome. Um, I got my first ATP point off of that same summer. Oh, so wow. So it kind of carried on to the summer and um, finishing so was that. So was that a turning point for you in terms of making the decision to go on the tour after you finished school? Yeah. So um, I've always, you know, had aspirations to play, you know, professionally. And, you know, I always wanted to. Since you were eight. Yeah, since I was eight, exactly. <laughs> but um, after that, that time where I was really, you know, almost burnt out, and I had that refocus, that rekindling of my, you know, passion. You know, I, I finished the rest of the year really well. I had a great summer. And I really started enjoying, again, the process. You know, going out and running on your own, doing all these other things that are really required to be at the top of your sport. And um, I started enjoying developing myself again mm-hmm. as a tennis player, which also made me develop myself as a person. So this was the summer after your junior year? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just trying to keep yeah, everything, yeah, yeah. like the time frame straight. Right. So so you still had to come back and have another year of school. Right. Was it hard to get motivated after you got that ATP point to come back for your senior year? Because there, there's so many players that choose not to. Right. Um, after that next year was actually very motivating. After I got my ATP point, I was a senior. We had a new freshman class which had a lot of excellent players. So I was I was actually a captain that year, my senior year. Okay. I played number one single to double. Um, I took a leadership role on the team. And um, I really 
think that the coach was very smart in doing that because it kept me motivated, it mm-hmm. kept me accountable to pursue, you know, a great year that year academically and athletically and to continue, you know, afterwards. So it's something I, I really credit Talk a little bit about what it means to be a freshman on a college team and coming in and as the new kid and, you know, the older players on the team and how you interact with them. And then contrast that with, as you said, your role as, as a leader your senior year and what your responsibilities were in that role. Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, for inner, any, you know, parent, junior tennis parent out there or a junior tennis player, um, when you transition from high school to college, that's the massive step as a person that you're growing. I think, you know, everyone should have some ability to step on a college campus and experience, you know, having 20,000 other kids, you know, around your age, you know, doing things with you. You know, I think that's a great learning tool for you, for every, for everyone. Um, when I went to Louisville as a freshman, you know, I had all the um, all the not stresses, but um, things that you focus on when you when you're leaving your your house for the first time. You know, I was going from North Carolina to Louisville, Louisville, uh, Kentucky. Uh, which <laughs> that was is, um, yeah, it's Louisville. That's how we say it. That's how we say it. So, yeah, uh, it's about seven hours. So for me, my parents could visit, but it wasn't one of those things where they could just show up. Right. You know, at like some of the North Carolina schools I was looking at, they could literally just, you know, show up an hour later, you know. Right. Um, so I was on my own for the first time, really, uh, for was the that, period of time. Sorry to interrupt, but was that a factor in your decision, like being far enough away that you really couldn't just run home every weekend or whatever? Yes, it actually was. Um, I'm a Southern boy. I love the style. Um, I, you know, before that, I played tournaments all around the nation, but I – was mostly in the South, you know, even if I went to Atlanta to train a couple of times, it'd be in the you know, southern region. So I thought for me, you know, experiencing another different part of the country, Kentucky is considered really the Midwest. It's still in the South, but it's more Midwestern. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very close to Indiana. Um, and for me I thought it was pretty it'd be cool to experience another part of the country. Um, and it wasn't somewhere that I could if I was having problems, I could just go home on the weekend, you know, if I didn't have, like, the coach or the team or something, oh, I'll just go home and, you know, every, like, it's like, I'll be, like, it was back in high school. Right. Um, it made me more independent. Um, I still had the option to go home because it was seven hours, so I could make a trip to go home, but I did, I did, that was part of my uh, deciding factor, or it wasn't the deciding factor, but it, it played a role into it. Okay, so I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no. So you're talking about as a freshman coming in and, and how important it was to you, the, the upperclassmen on the team and your interaction with them yeah. and all that. So at Louisville, we had um, my freshman year, we had three other freshmen and we had five, I think five other, uh, we had four sophomores, which are ahead of me and one senior. So our class was actually very, our team was very young. Very young, yeah. Um, the three freshmen, so there were four four uh, players in my class. We stayed in the same dorm. We were actually connected. So it was me and my uh, roommate connected to a bathroom with the other two freshmen. Okay. So we literally lived together. So that made us extremely close. 
you know, anytime in college you're living with a roommate, you find out that when you literally live with another person a few feet away from you, you learn everything about it, yeah. you know, it's a new experience. Good, every, bad. Yeah, good, bad, everything. Ugly, exactly. not so ugly. Exactly. Yeah. So that really made the freshman class very close. And then the sophomore class, which did the same thing, mm-hmm. um, was also very close. And because we only had nine players, our team was very close. Um, even though we had we had three Americans and six um, international players. So okay. we, had a, we did have a lot of international players. Um, but for me, actually, that was also one of my first experiences with, you know, a lot of international players right. because I was from the South. But, you know, we had New Zealand, we had England, we had India, we had uh, Venezuela, we had France, we had Serbia. Wow. So I'm coming into, you know, an 18-year-old and you have 18, 18 to 20-year-olds from all these different countries uniting as one team, right. which was pretty special. You know, it made us very close. Uh, they made it hard for us sometimes because we were freshmen. Right. Um, that's their job. Yeah, that's their job, right. you know, and uh, we learned from them. So for us at our school, we grew with that team for basically three years until they graduated. And then once they graduated, I was a senior. Mm-hmm. And we had a new freshman class that came in under us. So it was very important for us to show that freshman class what we had done to get to our, you know, peak rankings and whatnot. Um, when I was a freshman, though, they, our coach made it pretty important for everyone to take leadership. Mm-hmm. It wasn't one of those teams where, you know, well, actually because we only had one senior and we had eight other underclassmen right. where the seniors did everything. So from for us, everyone was accountable. Everyone had a role in um, helping the team grow. And then uh, the senior year, same thing, everyone had a role, but because now we had four seniors, it was, uh, we were looked upon a little bit in a different role because we were setting the, 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 the standard for, you know, the freshman class. Right. So I think... Uh, Did the culture change on the team over the course of your four years there, or... or- was there an established culture that just permeated all four years? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think the culture from my freshman year um, grew, stayed pretty much the same, but it grew within those three years because we were the same guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though our, we started having better results, um, the culture still changed. And then when I was a senior, we still, we actually did begin seeing a, a, a little bit of a change in the culture because, you know, each, it's very important for your college coach to know your personality. You know, he he or she must, you know, be able to manage, you know, 10 to 12 individuals right. and make that those individuals one strong team. So as we had a new uh, new members on our team, it was very important that he was flexible with how he looked um, and how he managed all of us individually. Um, we had different characters and personalities to enter the team, and um, that was a little bit, not tough, but it was it was something we had to adapt to. Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit of a culture change. Um, it's not very good or bad, but there was, there was that. And I think in college tennis, generally, 
um, you start to see ebbs and flows of the teams because each program is different. You know, you have classes come in and classes come out, so you can really see differences sometimes how teams can go up high in the rankings for a few years and then how other teams can rise. And it, it's actually very interesting to see because it's, uh, the players on the team and the culture, especially in college tennis, make up a lot of the reasons why those teams do well. Sure. Did you have the same coach all four years? Yeah, so Rexy Kamala, I think, has been at Louisville for maybe 20 or 25 years. He's been, you know, a star there. Um, and uh, he's done a great job. He was he built the tennis center. He's really made a great program there. Um, I know that um, they went through a tough season last year, but I know they're going to bounce back and they're going to be having some, some more great success very soon. Um, and I think the relationship between the player and the coach should be a genuine relationship. I still talk to Rex even now. You know, I graduated three, four years ago, but I still talk to him. I, you know, I reach, and he gives me advice about things, not just with tennis, but, you know, business, marketing, you know, being a professional at life, you mm-hmm. know. Um, I think when you're looking through college and you're looking through a college coach, it's important that you have, you know, that understanding and you can grow that relationship with, between the player and the coach because, you're going there for tennis and academics, and you're going to be developing both of those, um, both of those greatly in that in those four years. Sure. So it's very important to to look for someone who can develop you in both of those, both of those um, aspects. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about your transition to professional tennis, because that's why you're here that's this right. week, and um, that's how we met sitting in the stands next to each other, watching some great tennis yesterday. Um, So you came here to play in the qualifying tournament and um, didn't get through the two matches, but, I mean, had some great matches. And and one of the things that struck me yesterday when we were chatting was what you said about your takeaway from your matches. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. You know, we all say you either win the match or you learn from the match. And um, I, I feel like you really get that. So talk a little bit about how you incorporate that mindset when you go out onto the court. Yeah. Um, professional tennis is a whole other beast, you know. Um, it's the same as it has a lot of similarities, but you're now doing this full time, you know, it's your career. So it's a lot, a lot more demanding. Um one thing that I've learned recently, I've actually heard it all throughout my entire career, but, you know, as you grow and you develop, something finally gets into your brain, you know. <laughs> you know I it's think a boy it's thing. Yeah, I think it's a boy. And, you know, you're, I know every parent out there has told, you know, their son or daughter something a thousand times. And then I think maybe for the parent, maybe it's great. I don't know because I'm not a parent, but I'm sure it's very re- rewarding when the son or daughter finally yes. gets what, what the parent was saying as if they'd never said it to them before. Exactly. Um, but, you know, that's how we are. You know, yeah. I think it's, it's, uh, it's a certain time for everyone. But um, one thing that I, I finally caught on is with every match, with every day, actually, your life, you have um, positives, you have things that you need to work on, and you have basically um, takeaways from the day. So positive can be, this is just something that I've, I've learned. Positive can be, you know, for your match, 
you serve with a, a great percentage, you know, mm-hmm. or if you're not a tennis player, you know, you did really well at your job, you know, did something well with your paper if you're, a, you know, an academic, you know, high school, you know, you did it great on your test that day. It's a positive for the day. Um, things you need to work on could be, for tennis, um, your footwork broke down in a certain part of the match, or if you're a in high school, you know, maybe you didn't do your homework as well as you could have, or you didn't spend enough time on your homework. Um, and same thing with your job. You know, if we have things that we did well, we have things that we could improve, and then for the pearl of the day, or the takeaway of the day, would be what can you do from that day that can influence how you do the next day, the future. So I really started looking at that and writing that down and having like a little journal. Um, and once again, like the takeaway can be something like, for me, um, I played a great match. There were some aspects of the match that I, I could have uh, done better. I'm not going to be to dwell on them in a negative way, but if I actually am proactive and the next time I get this opportunity in the match, um, I use this particular pattern or shot, which is what I'm, you know, I'm working on. Um, maybe I don't do it 100% of the time, but if I do that 20% better, you know, the next time I get that opportunity, that 20% is going to help me. Right. You know, same thing with your school. You know, if you want to spend 20 minutes more doing your homework or something, you know, maybe you don't get 100% on your homework, but that 20%, maybe you, you learn something, you know. Um, I think that's one of the things with professional tennis that I've recently realized, and it's it's like you said, it's you know you've heard it a million times, and then finally the light bulb goes on. The the margins are so small in professional tennis. I mean, to watch you play and to watch Djokovic play, there's there's not a whole lot that's different between the two of y'all. Yet he's number one in the world, and you're having to go through qualities, right. you know. The margins are tiny, so a 20% difference, even a 1% improvement can make a huge difference in the gap, yeah? Yeah, that's completely true. Um, I think something I told you yesterday when we talked was making tiny little improvements but being intentional to try and make those improvements is maybe more important than whether you win or lose. So if let's say if you are intentionally trying to, for me, if I'm intentionally trying to hit a serve better and I'm actually focusing on making that intent, if I keep, maybe I don't make the next serve, but if I keep staying intent and focusing on that, Mm -hmm. that little bit of focus and that little bit of effort is eventually going to pay off. You know, all things, you know, if you work hard enough at it, it's going to pay off. So those little differences, you know, like you're saying, the margins are very small. If you keep, if you stay positive, and you keep believing, and you keep working, and you're intentional about it, then it's going to pay off. Um, I think that for juniors, it's very, you know, we all think about wins and losses, especially as a teenager, and you know, going through junior tennis and with a parent. I know it's very important to not. Uh, as a parent, it, it should be very important to not stress winning and losing, mm-hmm. but playing the right way and developing, you know, the skills, playing with integrity, you know, all that kind of things like that. But, you know, you hear that, but it's actually very important because those things are going to make the differences when, you know, you're in college and you have a decision between, am I going to 
study hard? Am I going to, you know, hit extra serves? Or am I going to go to that, you know, big party that we're all right. after? Right. You know, or am I, if I'm out here professionally, am I going to, you know, do extra when no one's, when literally no one's out there and no one's forcing you, you're your own, you know, you have your coach, you're in charge of your coach, you're in charge of your fitness coach, you're paying them. And you, if you get mad at them, you can tell them, I don't want to work with you anymore. You know, sure. it's not, you're the boss, you know, kind of. Um, so developing those skills from a young age is very important to be able to make those decisions as a professional. Right. So this morning before you came down here to do this interview, you told me you went upstairs to sign in to hopefully be an alternate in the tournament. So talk a little bit about that. How does that work? And, I mean, you're here. You're trying to maximize your time here, obviously. Right. Um you're financially, you're not traveling with an entourage right. and uh, being driven around in a limo. Right. So, right. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. So here, I I have family here. Um, so for me, I'm practicing every day. As, as you said, every day you're out here, you're trying to maximize. You're trying to have those positives and those takeaways for each day, right? So here, so at the professional level, um, things happen on the HP World Tour. People withdrawal, people have illness, people have food. Uh, things happen, basically. And, for and me, especially with the Olympics. Especially with the Olympics this week. Yeah. Actually, we actually had one player uh, withdraw already from singles and doubles. So there was actually a lucky loser this week. And a lucky loser is someone who loses in qualifying, but because of the withdrawal from the, the, the main draw, is able to still play in the main draw. So, and so what I did this morning was... Uh, they have a little sheet, and you just sign the sheet saying that, you know, you're available and you're here. And if there is a withdrawal or someone's injured or anything like that, you're uh, available to take their place in the main draw. So for me at my level, if I'm here and that opportunity is given, you know, for sure I have to take it. You know, right. I don't have a lot of uh, opportunities to wait, you know. So if that's an opportunity, we definitely need to – to take every opportunity to get. So it's pretty exciting, you know. It's, it's here, you're in this great atmosphere. You know, I've played all over the world in all different levels of tournaments. I've played Futures, I've played Challengers, and this is an ATP tournament. So you see all of, all the different aspects of tennis. You see, you know, how truly global it is and how tough it really is to be a tennis player. But you actually get a great perspective on your life, your lifestyle, and what you're here at a tournament at this level. Yeah, and... So you've been traveling a bunch, and, and like you said, you've played all these different levels. Can you kind of enlighten us on what the main differences are between playing a Futures, for example, versus playing an ATP 250 event that's in this gorgeous location, yeah. and, you know, you've got a lot of perks here, right, right. and they take care of the players pretty nicely. Right. Um you talk about that and, and when you knew it was time to kind of strive for that next level. Yeah, so um, the Futures, so the Futures is a base level of professional tennis. It's kind of like the, the single A, I guess, if it was a professional baseball. Um, it's not glamorous. It, they do, um, the, those tournaments do give you ranking points, though, so you're able to move through the rankings, um, you know, week by week in those tournaments. Um, and there are qualifying for the Futures, too, yes. just to clarify. Yeah, yeah. so there's qualifying uh, for those tournaments. That's how initially most people get their ATP ranking points, is playing the Futures qualifying, going through qualifying, 
time winning their first main draw match, which is, you know, for everyone, everyone remembers when they got their first ATP ranking point. Um, but those tournaments, you have, in the U.S., you have many college players, uh, many players that are, you know, juniors uh, striving to become professionals, so that's a great experience for them. Um, you have a lot of players who played in, in college and are now uh, striving for professional rankings. And then you have some guys who were playing a higher level and maybe they were injured or, you know, they've had some kind of setback and they're coming back to play futures. But futures in general, um, the price money is very, very low. Um, the, How low? So a ten so a ten thousand dollar future is the lowest. Um so I think if you if you lose in qualifying, there's no money made, so you, you don't receive any money. Um if you do make it to the main draw or if your your ranking gets you directly into the main draw, I think you get I'm not for sure quite sure into that number. I think maybe it's hundred and seventeen dollars. <laughs> so you're playing, you know, literally another professional player, you know, could be ranked anything in the world, could be coming back from an injury, a former top, you know, 150 player, right. could be the next up-and-coming player, and you're just battling out there, and one of those players is going to get $117,000 that week. <laughs> so, um, actually, really, if you look at it that way, it's actually very exciting, but you're playing at, you know, parks, you're playing, or in the United States, you're playing at parks, you're playing at some very nice clubs, but... The, the the like for instance I played in Brazil um two weeks ago I was playing a ten thousand dollar future in Brazil and the facility was very nice, people were very nice, but the hotel that was um a part of the tournament was three hundred and fifty dollars per night US. Holy cow. So I was not able to afford that. <laughs> so I had to look for another hotel inside the city. The hotel inside the city was not very nice, so you're not staying in the nicest places. There's no physios there giving massages. Here at the ATP level, you have chefs upstairs, you have massage masseuse, you have, you know, they're giving you practice balls at the features level. You have to pay to get a practice ball. It's it's really, it's actually, it's a quite contrast, you know. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, everyone has to, not everyone, but most people start at the future level and work their way up. Um, but it's not somewhere you want to stay for a long time. It's good to, to go and try and challenges and ATP tournaments because you see this level and you, it, there's a lot to gain. You know, there's, you can learn. Um, you, I, for me, I got into the qualifying and I had a good match and I had a lot of takeaways and there was more money in the qualifying than um, at the future you win the tournament, actually. So, you know, more financial gains there. Wait, so you made more money playing qualies here, even though you didn't even get through qualies, than you would have made winning a Futures tournament. Yes, that is correct. Wow. So the, the Futures $10,000, num- the, the winner receives, I think, about 1300 and change. Um, for the qualifying first round, I, re- I think I received maybe $1,400 with a hotel expenses paid for and food paid for. Wow. At the Futures level, you're paying for your hotel, you're paying for your stringing, you're paying for transportation, you're paying for everything. Mm-hmm. So it's a very it's a big financial burden. Um, so the goal is to get out of that level as quickly as possible. The goal is to get out of that level as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, here you have fans watching your matches. There you don't have, you know, I've literally played in tournaments where there was not a 
single person watching that single match. That's heartbreaking. And you're out there, you know, it's it's a, it's a it's an interesting experience. You're out there literally giving your all. You're playing that some other player is giving their all. Both of y'all could probably, you know, one day later be playing at a super high. Actually, this is a perfect example. I played J.P. Smith here in qualifying um, in the Grandstand Stadium. Okay, and so let me just, for listeners, J.P. played at University of Tennessee. So another former college player who is grinding it out. So J.P. and J.P. qualified, so he's in the main draw here. And um, then I think as high as 108 in the world. So he's, uh, you know, he's done very well. He's grinding it out. Um, I played him here this week in the Grandstand Stadium. Beautiful court, ball kids, everything that you could possibly ask for. Ice house, fans, literally fans on the court, you know, keeping you full. Um, crowd, amazing experience. I also played JP in a future, I think, two to three years ago at a club in Canada. Literally, I think there was three people watching the match, and those three people were players. There was no spectators. Wow. Um, we had water. I don't think they gave us Gatorade. So we, we didn't have Gatorade, and we're the same players playing the yeah. same, you know, maybe we're a little better now than then, but this was, we're the same players playing the same level, and it's just the, the level of the tournament that's different. So it's, 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 uh, it's quite fascinating how the venue can change, but the players are still particularly around the same, the same level. Interesting. So we're we're coming down to our last like fifteen minutes or so. So I want to make sure we touch on everything because your your story is so fascinating <laughs> to me. So at, at what point do you look at your career and say I'm doing as well as I'm ever going to do? It's time to put that political science theory to work. Or do you? I mean. How do you make that decision? And I, I ask this of a lot of the guys that I talk to because, to me, that's such an interesting place, especially for someone at who's below 100 or above 100, however you say yeah, that, right. Right. Who's, not, who's not earning a living from their tennis right. quite yet. Right. How do you make those decisions? And is yeah. it something you revisit week by week, month by month, once a year? How does that work? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think... Um, because tennis is so top-heavy, the, the top players make, you know, a great salary, you know, which is awesome for them. They deserve it. They're winning. You know, that's fantastic for them. But the, the lower levels are losing money every week. You're losing money. You're losing money. So it's important to kind of not base everything on financial gain because if you do that, you're going to – every week you're going to want to quit because you're losing money. You know, you can have a great result you make the finals in the future, but be in a hotel for six, seven days and you still lost money. So if you look at it, you know, with only winning or losing money, you're going to A, be depressed probably <laughs> yeah. because you spent all this money. You're going to be spending your money on yeah, Xanax. Exactly. You're going to be spending all this money and you're not going to. Um, but for me, you know, my career goal is to play the U.S. Open. I'm always going to be, you know, focusing on that. Um, my other goal is to, you uh, always help and inspire youth um, to make healthy and positive and productive lifestyle choices. And for me, that's using through using tennis. Tennis was something I've been doing my entire life. Right. There's probably nothing in my life that I know better than tennis at this point currently because I've been doing it for 20-something years to this level. Um, but 
I think each person has to look at themselves and their career and really know what they want. Some people play tennis for all, you know, for a long time. Um, others, you know, decide this isn't what they want or they've lost their passion. Um, that being said, the general age for tennis is, is getting older. You right. know, this year uh, at Wimbledon, they had, I think, 20 or 30 people in their 30s. In their 30s. I know, that was crazy. The main draw, yeah. which is... At an incredibly high level. An incredibly high level. Five you know, sets. Five sets. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you have guys, 28, you know, guys are starting to reach their peak at 28. No, not even their peak. They're just starting to break through at 28, 29, 30 and playing to their 33. So you have that aspect looking at, well, maybe if I keep going, you know, if I keep plugging along, you can make it. You have a guy like Victor Estrella mm-hmm. who I think won a title at 30-something, won his first title at 30, played future for a long time, quit. Actually, he quit, came back, started doing really well, made top 100, a great player, great guy. Um, and then you have also, you have young phenoms. You know, you have 20-year-olds making it. You know, you have Alex Rev, who's doing great. You know, we've been playing the same futures a few years ago. Right. So you see all these different people coming in and out of these future tournaments, playing these high-level tournaments, because those tournaments have great players, right? So you, you have to kind of look at yourself personally and see, you know, am I developing? Am I going on the road that I want to go on? Am I able to make a career choice? Do I have other opportunities that I'm looking at? Um, am I, you know, happy with where I am in my life? Or if not even if I'm not happy, do I see myself, you know, being more productive in something else? Um, so I think that's something that you have to, you know, be aware of. Um, if you still are financially able and you're still passionate, you know, everyone has told me, you know, if you're passionate and able and you're getting better and you're financially able to, don't get a, you know, don't go to law school just yet. You know, law right. school, you can go to law school, you know, 27, 28, you know. You can be behind that desk for a long time, and, you know, which is maybe something I'll, you know, I'll do eventually. Mm-hmm. But um, currently, though, my passion has never been higher. I'm getting better every week. I'm enjoying it. I'm having all these great experiences. So right now, my focus is tennis. Um, obviously, I like I said, I've launched a brand new website, which is Carter. Dot com. Which we'll have a link to on our site. Yeah. And on there, I, I'm having a live, uh, live videos. I'm taking videos from these tournaments from all over the world. I have a blog. Um, I have it where you can email me. You can write to me. I'm writing about my life experiences on the tour. I'm going to have uh, some mentoring, uh, mentoring blogs where I'm not just talking about tennis. I'm talking about some of the things that I've learned personally in my life that have helped me in, helped me in tennis, but have also helped me, you know, with my other opportunities and to help me get sponsors. I have a great sponsor with Polinko Sports. Um, for Yay, Polinko. My Polinko backpack is uh, with me <laughs> every day. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Polinko. Thank you so much. And my other uh, clothing sponsor is Post USA. They're a fantastic company on the rise. Um, very fashionable gear. They're actually the sponsor this week. I was going to say, yeah. The Atlanta Open. And, They're clothing all the ball kids, the officials, yeah. all the volunteers. Yeah, so I definitely want to give a big thank you to them and, you know, for helping me, you know, prolong my career and helping me um, with other things than that doing you. Um, but, yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's very important to have, to still be out there and be productive because, for me, I, like, this week I received messages via my Twitter and my Instagram from young you know, young urban kids looking up to me 
and asking me, actually, I had one kid specifically ask me, hey, man, um, I really, i looking up to you. I watched you play this professional match. Do you think I can do what you do? Wow. And honestly, I... I got chills. Yeah, like, you know, I, you know, I'm not a top 100 in the world ranked player, you know. I'm not playing Grand Slams currently right now at the moment. But for me, someone to message me that and to, you know, to ask me that that they were proud of me, basically, and they want to do something that I'm doing, that actually was maybe the highlight of my, my week. I yeah. did. It was for sure. It was more important than me winning or losing that match, but this guy, you know, is out there and he wants to work hard and, you know, maybe he'll be better than me. Maybe, I don't know, but if he has that passion and he's inspiring and he's trying to do something with his life, you know, I think that's just as important, you know, as maybe winning some matches here and there. So, you know, for me, I definitely want to move forward. I'm definitely working as hard as I can to move forward with my tennis. That is my main goal. I want to, you know, make reach all my tennis goals. But, you know, there's other things, and I'm going to be developing other things with my website and my blog to help reach out and do other things professionally. Mm-hmm. But, yes, I am still working very hard at my tennis, my tennis career. What do you think needs to happen to close the gap financially between the top players and you guys that are out here grinding away? Yeah, um... Well, they started to slowly uh, increase the, the prize money distribution um, at the lower-level tournament that hadn't changed since the 70s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything has been marked since the, since the 70s except for the prize money of tennis players. So that needs to change. Um, we need to market more of the person, uh, the people playing tennis. You know, you have people from all different fight backgrounds. You know, you have people from around the world, you have, just here in America, you have different, you know, I'm African-American, you have African-American, you have Asian, you have Latino, Latino, Latinos, you have all these, you know, you have all these people coming from different socioeconomic and different different demographics, mm-hmm. and we have to market that, you know, if we really want this, this sport to be great and to be inclusive, we have to really be inclusive with our marketing, you know, we have to market, you know, young guys, we have to market older guys, we have to market people that are, you know, about to break through, super exciting, we have to market those guys that have just kept plugging along, plugging along, and they're making it too, you know, so we have to, you know, talk more about, um, we have to also connect those that have been doing very well with those that are trying to start, and then we also have to connect those that have been doing it long and, you know, are having some success with those that want to be where they are. Mm-hmm. And I think when we bring those things together, tennis is going to be a lot more marketable. It's going to be a lot more personable. You're not going to see the same guys over and over again. Um, and people are going to relate. And people, when people relate, there are fantastic guys out here. You know, our athletic abilities are great, but there's fantastic people and personalities. And I think if you can market those personalities, along with the fantastic tennis that you're seeing, you know, people are going to like tennis a lot more. It's not going to be, you know... Uh, yeah, stuffy sport, you know, with everyone wearing, you know, collared shirts, and, you know, you, you can't... As you sit here in your collared shirt. shirt. You know, I have a very nice bow shirt, but, you know, you can't clap in between, you know, you have to, you know, it's going to get more exciting for everyone, bringing different people and different demographics to the, to the matches. So I think it's really going to be um, something that's going to help tennis grow. What do you think about personalities like Nick Kyrgios, who, you know, he's kind of been tagged the bad boy of tennis, of the next-gen group, and 
you know, my personal feeling is I think it's good for the sport. Yeah, Nick's a great guy. Um, he's not, I mean, to me, he's been nice every time I've met him. Um, you know, he's a different kind of guy. You know, he's he likes basketball. He likes, you know, different types of music, you know, and honestly, I know there have been, been drama with him doing some things on court, um, but I know, I, I'm, I'm sure that he knows some of the things he's done maybe haven't been the most, you know, presentable thing. But at the same time, you have to let him grow and develop. He's a very, you know, he's very young. He's out here at the top of the sport, you know, doing things. But he's going to grow. He's going to develop. We're all growing. We're all developing. But I think having someone with that kind of excitement and attitude is very exciting. It's fun to watch. It's uh, it's going to bring a different type of fan to the court, and overall for everyone, I think that's, that's what we want. And before we close, we're down to about our last three minutes. I want to just pick your brain a little bit about the importance of the college tennis experience. And you know, I, I talk about this a lot: the kids that that forego college and go right on the tour versus those that spend some time in college and. Um, Yesterday's match between Chris Eubanks and Riley Opelka was so interesting to me because you had a guy who's going into his junior year of college and is planning to stay all four years versus a guy who made the decision to go right into the pros. And the match was 7 6 7 6. Riley won, but it was 7 6 7 6. Right. So they were neck and neck. Yeah, you know, Chris is playing great tennis. He's a great guy. Um, he's working, he works very hard. Um, he's going to a great school at Georgia Tech with a great, great, uh, with great coaches and great facilities. So he's getting, you know, I think a lot of great development there at Georgia Tech. You know, um, he's developing as a person. He's getting, having great experiences there. And for me, that's what I, I did as well. I, I took the college route. He's also getting an education, but let's not forget that. Right. You know, so he's getting a great educa- education from a fantastic university. Um, as an American, I think that's a, that's a good value. Um, but, you know, Riley's playing great tennis, you know. He's, he has support. He has a wild card, and he's having these opportunities given to him. So, you know, it's very tough to turn down these opportunities. Um, I don't think really that's a right or wrong decision. It's for each person. You, you don't know what they're going through, and you don't know what's been presented to them. Right. So, you know, Riley's a great guy. He works very hard. He's working, you know, every day to get better and to, to reach his goals as well. But, you know, maybe for some so I think either way is good, but in my opinion, I like college tennis. Good. Well, I'm all about college tennis, too, and that's a great segue to just remind you guys to get signed up for the Saul Schwartz Save College Tennis All-In Tournament coming up in Baltimore August 20th and 21st. The link to register is at the top of our Facebook page, so please take a look and get your junior signed up. And I wanted to say thank you so much to Andrew. I, I hope you get that spot in the main draw. I'd love to come watch you play. And- uh, all the best, and thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to thank everyone who's listening, and thank you uh, to my parents for always supporting me. You know, everything they've done, they've been very supportive. And you can contact me through my uh, website at andrewparkscarter.com or my Facebook page at Andrew Parks Carter Tennis, or and my Instagram is also Andrew Parks Carter, and my Twitter is ap.carter1. So I can be contacted through that. If you have any questions or anything, I'm always available to speak. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And to my listeners, thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week on Parenting Aces.